Welcome to 96 Careers, a podcast where we watch every feature film with Judy Greer in the cast. I'm Reg. I'm Patrick. And welcome to episode six, where we will be talking about In Memory of My Father, a 2005 movie by director Chris James. But first, um, we are recording on March 13th. Last night was the Academy Awards ceremony. Patrick, on, on a scale of one to 10, how many fucks did you give? Nope, didn't get nominated. I gave zero fucks. <laughs> I, I gave one fuck, uh, and that fuck was about um, Harvey Guillen's uh, fabulous, fabulous outfit. That's fair. Um, That's fair. I, w- I was feeling like peripheral gender euphoria the entire day, just seeing that gorgeous tuxedo, which I could never afford, but he looked amazing. But but yeah, yeah, we're 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 film nerds. Kind of don't give a fuck about the Oscars anymore. Mm-hmm. I used to. I used to yeah. when I was in like college, you know, I, I really cared about the Oscars. Like, or we went to a watch party a few years ago. Sure, yeah. Um, if I'm invited to a party, I'll go to a party. Oh well, if we ever get invited to a party, we'll go to a party. God knows, <laughs> it doesn't happen often enough. If going to a party means we won't die from a respiratory ailment, we'll go to a party. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, there's a complication there. But no, I, uh, I never, I never watched a whole lot of the Academy Awards, so that just never was part of my uh, sort of cinephilia. Yeah. I, I feel like I would watch maybe like one or two movies that would get nominated and then like I would kind of that would be like what I was rooting for. I think just as time goes on, I, you just kind of grow more cynical about like why movies are nominated mm-hmm. and why movies are, are winning. And um, especially like with like our taste in movies, we end up seeing a lot of the like weird art house fair that would just never get a, a second glance from the Academy. And it's like, well, my favorite movie of 2022 after Sun mm-hmm. No recognition, like little like, one recognition. Oh, really? Uh, the the one actor whose name I forget got nominated for best actor. Oh, he did. Okay, yes. yeah. Well, I mean, and the, and that's fair because he was he was amazing. Right. I mean, like, yeah, like like you said, nope, didn't get nominated. We we. I mean, both of us thought that was one of the best movies of twenty twenty two. Easily firing on all on all cylinders and didn't get nominated for anything. Really, really disappointing. Um, uh, I read a book called Down and Dirty Pictures, which was sort of about the independent film boom of the late eighties through the nineties mm-hmm. and. Uh, primarily because of their place in that boom uh, about Miramax and the Weinsteins and everything. Oh, uh-huh. And reading that and actually learning about like how Oscar campaigns are run and how like the political the Academy Awards are and who votes and why, mm-hmm. um, you begin to realize like, oh, none of this means anything. It was just like, you know, Harvey Weinstein can go out and buy an Oscar for Shakespeare in Love. Right. <laughs> like, okay. Well, yeah, yeah. Then I don't have to take this seriously anymore. I am freed. And 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 I think that was so especially bizarre this year because there was that, that supposed controversy around uh, Andrea Riceboro's nomination. It was like a whisper campaign on social media and that's breaking the rules and you're not you're not allowed to like directly reach out to the to the people who were voting and it's like don't they get screeners don't they get like all this stuff anyway this ah oh god it, it was just like like another i there's always like like some big annual eye roll for me which like i will forget in three months but that was definitely this year's i uh i, I find it easy to ignore and so i try to have as few hot takes as possible because i do think it's a mostly harmless thing to get energized about um yeah, I, you know, if only because who wins and who doesn't win means nothing anymore. There was a point where uh, film 
held a, a specific uh, meaning in our culture. Yeah. And therefore, people would go out and see films that were interesting or like culturally relevant in some way, and mm-hmm. they would drive conversations about things. Mm-hmm. And that's just like not the case anymore. Like no one went out and saw these movies. Yeah. Like I think the reason everything everywhere all at once won at all is because Hollywood was just like so gobsmacked that a movie without Spider Man got people to go into the theaters. <laughs> so they'd like it was such a good story to hop on. Um, sure. I think really the 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 bottom line is that it feels like we're trying to avoid something and that's starting this podcast and talking about this movie um this might be the shortest podcast we ever do because god is there so little to say about the memory of my father um i it was when you were introducing it i i started laughing because you said every judy greer movie there was just a bit of stank on that word every because it's like turns out we're taking we thought we were taking the bad with the good we didn't know what how good we had it stank would be the key word <laughs> for this discussion i'm gonna i'm gonna make my prediction now and uh say that oh god all right this, this i think i think episode six is also um notable for being the the first podcast i i had to get some well chicago courage because it was malort before we started <laughs> to kind of grease the wheels oh boy okay um so (laughs) people aren't gonna know what we're talking about they're gonna be so lost because there's so much to keep track of in this movie yeah could you please for them recap the plot of and honestly i keep forgetting what is the title of this movie is it the memory of my father in the memory of my father it's in memory of my father in memory of my father okay i'll try not to get that wrong (laughs) can you please recap the plot of in the memory in memory of my father. I would be happy to recap the plot of In, in Memory, memory of, of My father. father. And here we go. A famous movie producer dies in his home after a long illness. His family gathers in the home to mourn him, do drugs, complain about their fucked up relationships, and argue with each other. Per his last request, the wake is filmed. The end. <laughs> No, that can't be all that happens, is it? Uh, I, I mean, women get yelled at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, in in terms of plot, there's really there's really not a lot going on here. Okay, I, I mean, of course, we're we're being flippant. I don't want to be disrespectful to the audience of our podcast, and we appreciate you listening. Um, yeah, the, I mean, the, this is a movie that starts out with. Um, like like a Hollywood producer in his beautiful California mansion dying in bed and um his his personal assistant is there mm-hmm. played by Pat Healy played by Pat Healy helpfully named Pat all the characters are named after the actors yes yeah um which is super helpful um an- another Chicago treasure Pat Healy oh sure um cheap thrills big fan oh yeah oh yeah um uh, so yeah, it starts out with with uh, with his personal assistant Pat and uh, one of his three sons. I believe it's Jeremy, played by Jeremy Sisto, six feet under, clueless, and he's on a crime procedural now. I yeah, think. Yeah, it's one of those Criminal Minds kind of shows. Jeremy Sisto is one of those guys who always has a TV show going. Sure, he sure. just he can slot into that role real well. For sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah. He 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 does have that that kind of vibe. But in 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 this, he's he's you know a son of a film producer so it's him and then as one of the film producer's sons jeremy and then uh the other two sons um one of whom is matt uh and the other of whom is chris played by the writer and director chris james um the lead of the film yeah, is chris yeah, basically yeah and uh it, it's just sort of this day in which their father dies uh 
He has asked Chris to film his death and the the bereavement process for his uh, loved ones, uh, which Chris is doing and, and which Pat is doing for at least the first act. So, But they also have hired cameramen. So for some reason, the cameramen are doing it for the rest of the movie. Yeah. And it, then but other than this opening scene. Yeah. Yeah. So it starts out with Jeremy and, and Pat doing the filming themselves. And then it moves to hired cameramen doing the filming of the, the characters that we are actually focusing on. And then it sort of disappears into the ether. Um, <laughs> it, it really is totally inconsequential. It's the single high concept this movie has totally does not develop into anything at all. Yeah. yeah. I believe that this, and this isn't me um, ascertaining anything from interviews or anything. This is just from watching it. Like it feels like at a certain point, and this is 2006. So this is pre found footage revolution. 2009 is when that first paranormal activity came out. I think mm-hmm. 2008 is when uh, um, Cloverfield came out. And th- those were the two movies that sort of made found footage like a constant thing. I feel like this was a movie that was going to be like a Christopher Guest mockumentary slash found footage thing. Okay. And like that was a justification. The way it's shot, it feels like it feels very handheld and digital. And there are scenes that are from the point of view of the camera. And there are mm-hmm. scenes that are not from the point of view of the camera. And they all use the same camera. Well, <laughs> I well, I feel like there are other like indie dramedy sort of movies um, where there there is a switch between the sort of objective view of of the camera and then into like a more subjective view of what a character is filming in the world. Like American beauty does that. But Um, American, but, but very crucially American beauty is a kid holding a camcorder and then some, and then that actor is shot by someone with a motion picture camera on thirty five millimeter. This is all shot on the same digital cameras. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's true. It's not like you can, you, you you can't tell from the from the resolution or any visual clue mm-hmm. when they're switching between um, what they're filming and sort of the more like right. objective God's eye view of the so movie. So at the beginning of the movie, you see them talking to cameras. You see them discussing like, hey, what is this? Why is this guy following me around? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's part of dad's thing. He yeah. wants us to film all of this. And then all of that drops away. And I think the implication is what you are seeing is what the cameras are picking up, except there's absolutely no attempt to justify it. No. And there's constantly scenes where obviously there's no cameraman shooting this there's no one else in the room with this character um so it doesn't make any sense and it doesn't add anything it's just this sort of extra Mm -hmm. bit of garbage at the beginning of the movie but it's not like it's garbage that gets in the way anything because it's all garbage Um, well, yeah, no, it, it 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 is, it is. Um, but th- there is more garbage to unpack, I suppose. So we have, uh, and the father never gets a name. They just talk about him as like dad, mm-hmm. like 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 he's like the character who who does not get a name. Um, his much younger girlfriend is Judy, played by Judy Greer. Oh, um, ninety six Greers. Yeah, yeah. Um, her her role is basically confined to uh her deceased boyfriend's bedroom. Like she comes home. Chris is immediately an asshole to her. She holds herself up in the bedroom with the corpse. And, um, that was like one of the few, uh, emotional strands of the movie that I did sort of latch onto and find at least somewhat, um, tender is where, uh, Judy is, 
um, tending to the corpse and, and she has, she has her makeup out and she's saying, Oh, people will want to see you. So she's kind of like, like cleaning him a little bit, um, which I thought was kind of beautiful. The best thing that happens to Judy Greer in this movie is that she gets a portion of it where she doesn't have to act against any of these other actors. <laughs> yeah. She just gets to talk to a corpse. It is important yeah. to note that they are keeping the dad's dead body in his bed that he died in right. for the remainder of the day. So it's right. not, it's not as if, uh, you know, it's not as if the mortuary has come and taken him away and right. they're having the wake in the house. He is there in that bedroom where she is. Right. And, but it's but it's also not like they're arranging any kind of viewing. Like, no, I feel like like every now and then. No one even will... seems particularly curious about no, the dead body no. upstairs. There are other cultures where like a, a newly deceased body might be washed and then, you know, put, you know, put somewhere to be presented to people who who've come to mourn. And like, that's, you know, a very valid thing. But in this movie it seems like they're gonna go for that and then it just never happens and the body's just kind of sitting there and it's forgotten until it's it's remembered which makes me think that this wants to be a movie about loss and about family but with the just with the way that like the body's treated it doesn't really seem like it like it is it seems it seems like it's just it just kind of becomes this this button that they can push when they want a character to like cry silently. That's all the the function that like having a a deceased person in the movie seems to serve. So right from the very opening, the first thing you see is this like comedy thing about Chris and Pat uh, going back and forth about like, man, I don't want to film your daddy's dying. That's gross, dude, man. Fuck you, dude, bro. That's fucking gross. Uh, I, you do it. All right, man, I'm going to hold. And it's, and it's just about like how callous they are around his, their dying father. Right, right. It's just about like, this is going to be a, st- a story of awful, selfish people. And it's, yeah. and it's, what it's trying to do is like do really dark humor. Mm-hmm. The problem is it's only gross and it's not funny. And there's not a single, there's, there's one f- single funny line and I wrote it down. Okay. Um, but like, there's a lot of <laughs> for this, safekeeping. Yes. I need to remember it. I need to remember some glimmer of light. Um, so I think what it's trying to do is to be like, oh, you know, it's like Hollywood. It's all these people. They're so selfish and they get in their own way and they don't, I think it might be actually trying to, we talked about Larry Sanders, uh, Mm -hmm. earlier. Like, I think Larry Sanders is like the kind of thing that this movie wants to be. Okay. I can Um, see that. Larry Sanders wants to be, uh, and I think, I don't even, Larry Sanders is often, always successful with this Mm -hmm. but larry sanders wants to be about the dark reality of the kind of selfish people that make up hollywood Mm -hmm. and about like what would it take for them to be human with each other and to Mm -hmm. redeem themselves Mm -hmm. and i think that is what this movie is going for um it's just it's just horribly done even when you get more backstory about the relationships between these characters it just seems to bring about more of this this bitterness and this and this sniping like you find out that um that the brother's mother left their now deceased father for his brother so their uncle is also their stepfather and their cousin is their stepsister but there's no sort of like meditation on it they like you know obviously the um the their the uncle stepfather shows up um because he's part of the family and, and he's showing up to to pay his respects, but they they're just sort of sniping at each other and and there's there's no deeper contemplation of of what's going on. There's no attempt at reconciliation. It's it's just it's just more nastiness. Um, or um, like uh, I mean, all all three brothers have fucked up 
relationships with women. What a surprise. Um, <laughs> and um, so, so you have, you have Matt who's has a, a, you know, kind of problematic relationship with his, with his girlfriend and he's telling Judy about this, but his girlfriend isn't at his father's wake. And then you have Jeremy who is upset because his wife is seemingly attracted to a lesbian. And the way it's presented, but she's also not there at her father-in-law's wake. Why aren't these people there? Or like there's a lot of uh, hostility built up in this family because Mm -hmm. their uncle stole their mother, quote unquote, stole their mother away from the family. Their mother is not at the wake. wake. (laughs) And there are lines where it's like, don't you think she would want to know? And it's like, this isn't her kind of thing. And it's like, that's it. That's all that's, it's just like, it's just, they couldn't figure out a way to get the mom in the story. It was yeah. too many, it was too crowded with bullshit already. Yeah. So they were just like, oh yeah, she definitely wouldn't want to be here. They probably didn't know any 60 year old actresses. <laughs> um, it's also just, it's confusing on, cause you have all this like incestual um, sort of relationships where uh, Pat plays the assistant to right. this producer who is in who's madly in love with their cousin slash stepsister um and then there's another woman who is chris's ex who he's trying yeah. to stay friends with and the and what i was doing a lot of the emotional labor in this movie like like she's the one who's kind of like running around like trying to calm people down mm-hmm. trying to like like make amends and it's like she's not part of this family anymore she seems to be the only person who like feels there are stakes I, it doesn't feel yeah. like anyone else cares what happens to anyone else um they're and um the so this she's like she's, she's like the only one who who actually showed up to like be at a funeral and she's wearing like the most inappropriate yeah. funeral outfit imaginable she's wearing this like slinky halter top and like leather pants <laughs> and it's so the when we say the movie is bad, part of it is that it just it looks terrible. It's a lot of just like bad handheld mm-hmm. shaky digital camera. Part of it is that like the performances are really uh, terrible. All the dialogue is terrible. The characters are loathsome. The, there's no plot, so there's no stakes. There's no reason. The other thing is like on a very basic level, the audience needs to know who these people are before we can proceed about caring about them. And the way it introduces characters is so confusing. Yeah. Where like when people are introduced, they don't necessarily get a close up, and it's like, oh, well, you're supposed to know who they are because their name was mentioned two scenes ago, mm-hmm. and their relationship to this other character who was also not present in that scene was mentioned in that scene and it's like all right but i don't remember that proper name that happened 15 minutes ago right and so i spent a lot of this movie not remembering like okay which one is meadow which one is nicole right which like judy at first when uh she's introduced um chris immediately makes like a sexual joke at her and says hey honey and so i thought judy was his girlfriend i thought she was a sister for a while and then and then they make some comment about like oh dad's girlfriend's 26 it's like okay that was yeah so so it's like she has a whole scene where she freaks out and locks herself in the bedroom and it wasn't until like three scenes later that i even knew what her relationship to the to the dead dad was so it's just like across the board it's just so inept there's uh there's the one character who shows up with her boyfriend and uh-huh. it, this is the one who Pat is in love with. So when she shows up with her boyfriend, mm-hmm. Pat gets all mad. So she's like the cousin slash stepsister of yeah. the brothers. Um, oh no, no. Okay. So no, she's that, not. No, I, I'm mixing up. I'm mixing up uh, introductions because it's the other one. Um, it's Nicole who shows up with her boyfriend. So uh-huh. that makes Chris mad. Um, her boyfriend is named Todd. Uh, what happens is she walks into frame with Todd 
someone walks into frame and goes, hey, Todd, can you help me out in the garage? Would you mind helping out for a second? Todd walks off and you do not see Todd for 45 minutes. <laughs> so so this character who is like causing a lot of tension in this relationship or whatever, you learn nothing about him. He has no presence. You forget he exists. Yeah. And then later he comes back and he has this like big speech that he gives to Chris. And you're like, who the hell is this guy? And he like punches Chris, right? Isn't there some like there's some like violence yeah, between the two? No, of them. It's, it's it's just like it's just like oh he's another man so he's a threat because like that's the woman you were fucking or maybe still want to fuck so it's like well that's all you need to know about that person. So this is this is I've seen a lot of bad movies. Sure, I have I have maintained in my heart that the worst movie I've ever seen is The Clown Murders, which is like a very weird, extremely slow, horribly shot, extremely boring thriller, mm-hmm. um, starring John Candy of all people. Uh, oh no! From oh the, no! Yeah, from like the late seventies or early eighties oh. or something. So. Clown, Clown Murders, I think, is like the worst movie I've ever seen just because it provides no substance whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the worst movie I've ever seen twice because <laughs> <laughs> I had to watch it twice in order to actually... Because I, I knew I had to talk about it on a podcast right. and I knew that I had to describe what happens in it. And I realized after I saw it once that I could not do that. Watching this movie to talk about on this podcast... The irony was sitting on me like a lead apron when I think about how I have complained multiple times on this still relatively new podcast about lazy screenwriting and siblings um, saying, hey, brother, hey, sister, (laughs) to like really give you a very crystal clear sense of what their relationship is. (laughs) This movie could have used just a little bit of that, just a a tiny little... (laughs) You really of, did of complain that, about that of that lazy time. screen ra- screen yeah, writing because out. you do not know. For I mean, I mean, you. I think you had to like watch it twice through, and then I was like, Patrick, what? Why is Pat Healy there? He is he is he a cousin? What's going on? It's like he it's like, works with the dad. Yeah, which there's is, one tossed off line that yeah. someone else says to someone else where Pat Healy's not there, and that's where you get that info. Yeah, and it's like I guess he's just there to be like a dork like like his real function in the movie is to be this like sad sack dork compared to the brothers i i guess but the weird thing about this movie is so it is it is a typical character archetype where it's like oh yeah this is the guy who's socially awkward and inept and he's going to say the inappropriate thing and that is going to be a little like we talked about sid on the descendants like Mm -hmm. this is going to be a button we as screenwriters can hit when we need to uh like amp up a, a comedy and scene or shift tones or whatever. Mm-hmm. We can have this inappropriate person come in and do this inappropriate thing and make everyone feel uncomfortable. And that can be an engine for the plot. Every single human being in this movie only communicates in things that makes other people uncomfortable. Yeah. And, <laughs> it and does not register at all. And and with Pat being the most um, like socially inept of these characters, he just goes to this level that's, like skin crawling because I mean you have Pat Healy who I think there's an alternate universe out there where we're doing a Pat Healy podcast because he's very similar career-wise to Judy Greer where he got to start in the late 90s in Chicago um you know does a lot of like supporting roles character work very hard worker multiple titles a year mm-hmm. and also like Judy Greer gives a hundred percent like every time he shows up in a movie like like he's there he's present and he just has this like really intense energy I mean the, the movies that I remember him from are definitely more along the like suspense thriller line 
lines. Like we mentioned Cheap Thrills, mm-hmm. which he's excellent in. Um, Compliance is another movie where, where he's just like blood chilling in the like sociopathy that he brings to this role. So when he's in this role, it's like he has this woman who he's in love with and she's not returning that affection. And then there's a scene where he's just fucking screaming at her. And because of the intensity that Pat Healy brings to his performances, it's it's not funny it's not like cringeworthy it's like deeply upsetting yeah i i want to um i want to perform a monologue if i may oh please i because i think this is a safe space the audience needs to know when we say that the dialogue is bad and for the record i don't know how this movie was made Mm -hmm. i believe this movie was improvised it okay. has a the feel of very bad improvisation. Mm-hmm. It has the feel of people just swearing a lot as placeholders when they're trying to like build space for them to think of what they're going to say next. Of people like repeating. There's like all these little halt, uh, like uh, hallmarks of when you're watching a movie and you see bad improvisation mm-hmm. and it's just like, oh yeah, someone asks a question and then the person asks asks the question back. Uh, yeah. indignantly like that's someone who doesn't know the answer to that question what that character would say <laughs> and answer reply to that question um so I, I do want people to know just how terrible the dialogue in this movie is and i want people to know this is what the whole movie sounds like no matter who is speaking okay okay you know what fuck you all right hey excuse me i have something to say hello don't just walk away thank you I don't want to just have to deal with that shit where she's with that guy and I'm trying to be normal. It's fucking impossible because she's there with him and that used to be me. What He's giving her what he thinks she wants, which is what I thought she wanted, which is what she needs, but she doesn't want. And so to fill this void, she's going to fuck him, right? And then I have to sit there and smile while these horrible fucking visuals are going through my head. I just don't want it. I don't want to be part of that kind of hypocrisy. Thank you for coming out to the audition. We'll let you know. <laughs> Thank you very much. So it's like, that is like a, that's a 75 word monologue that communicates zero. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah. And, and it's, uh, yeah. It, it that, seems uh, like that, it, that, that, Hey, excuse me. I was going to say something. Okay. Okay. Cool. Thanks. That, that in particular, yeah. the entire movie is nothing but people going, Oh, excuse me. I was going to say you stepped on my line. So maybe I could go come back and like, yeah. Oh yeah. my God. It's insufferable. Yeah. It's just a lot of, a lot of, pettiness and bitterness and and insecurity um the other the other line kind of along those lines that kind of stuck with me is um jeremy's wife i think her name's monet um finally shows up to this wake where it's totally appropriate for her to have been there the whole time and like uh she finally gets out of him that he's upset because she's spending time with a lesbian and his response he thinks that his wife is cheating on him and valid thing to be upset about but the way that he expresses it to her is like i can't stand the thought of her eating your pussy and it's like that really that that's what this all comes down to like god yeah it it was it was just like this like latent homophobia which is trying to be this like edgy mammoth kind of thing it doesn't work i think that is really the key here because like we had a special hatred in our hearts for the descendants, mm-hmm. mostly because of the pedigree and because of sort of the place it had in the culture. Right. And because it was just like, it was so bad, but it was inexplicably so successful and so critically lauded mm-hmm. and, and won so many awards and all of that. Like, so we don't necessarily want to be the people who are like, find the low budget movie that uh oh, is no. that feels inept and then like get the knives out and say like ha ha look at these people they 
they scraped together fifty thousand dollars and fucked up. I mean, oh, yeah. this movie costs more than fifty thousand dollars because it has <laughs> this cast in it. This is a union shoot, but oh yeah, yeah, yeah. All of these, all of these actors, or at least in the in the main roles, um, have had by two thousand five have had like like established careers for several years in Hollywood. But it is it is that toxicity. It is just that like yeah. just pervasive, just gross feeling that. Uh, what you're watching is some some way captures the worldview of the of Chris James, the writer director. Like mm-hmm. that, what you that what you are experiencing uh, when you sit through this movie is like, yeah, this is just how people are, right? Like this is yeah. how me and my friends are. I just wanted to make a movie that was like honest about like what guys were really like. Yeah, like you get that yeah, vibe from absolutely. it, and you're just like, oh god, then you must. I I don't want any part of this. So I think this is an improvised film. Um, mm-hmm. That was slotted into, and this is a 2005 movie, right? Which means it was right in sort of the heyday of what was known as mumblecore, right? Uh, mumblecore was a sort of loose film movement, um, uh, mostly you know started uh, by Funny Haha in 2002. Uh, filmmakers like Andrew Bujalski mm-hmm. and uh, the Duplass brothers Joe and Joe Swanberg, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, would make these movies that were shot mo- largely shot digitally. Mm-hmm. They were very low budget. They were improvised. They had out every scene had an outline, and what the actors actually said, um, you know, was up to the actors. And it was about sort of capturing this very real thing. And it was about like we're not going to tell movies with Hollywood plots. We're going to tell movies that are maybe even feel plotless. That feel you mm-hmm. know they're, they're going to be these character studies, and we're going to discover as we make them what happens. And it's. And this kind of slots right into that. And a lot of those movies are bad and some of those movies are great. But mm-hmm. like the thing um, that makes them bad or great is not the budget. <laughs> um, right, right. You know, like Funny Haha, uh, we watched last night. Yeah. Uh, that's like one of my favorite uh, movies of that ilk. Like I, I really love Funny Haha. I think um, Lynn Shelton, uh, who, who... Oh, Hump Day, yeah. Hump Day mm-hmm. is, is a really good movie. Mm-hmm. There's there's several good movies that have been made this way. I totally agree with you. And it you're right. It has nothing to do with the the budget or the, the sophistication of the techniques used. I mean, Funny Haha, um, a lot of those actors really didn't go on to have careers in film. Mm. A lot, you know, they didn't really have a lot of... Um, of, of uh, experience coming in. The lead performance is excellent. I think it was the actress's first movie. She hasn't really done a lot since. Um, but there's a, there's a humanity and a vulnerability there um, that you don't get at all in this movie that, that does make it really relatable and does make you want to, uh, you know, kind of spend spend time with these characters. Um I I watched a, a more recent Joe Swanberg movie um, called Win It All, um, you know, kind of post mumblecore. Uh, you know, it does it does have some like kind of better known actors in it, but it's it's still the same kind of thing where it's just you know it's just this guy living in Chicago and he is struggling with a gambling addiction and you know that's that's kind of the the whole you know thrust of the movie there's no there's no big heist plot there's nothing like you know there's nothing like that he's just sort of this guy with a simple job going around chicago it doesn't even like try to you know have this uh this sort of weird thing that i i think happens a lot with movies that are set in like la where it's like oh my God, this decadent lifestyle that's so nihilistic and so hollow and don't you hate it, but but you still want to like voyeuristically watch us like 
do ecstasy and fuck each other, right? Because we're like young and beautiful and stylish and rich, right? Um, There's not that like sort of paradox there where it's just like, no, this is just this dude who's just struggling with his baggage and trying to make ends meet. Um, But because there's a a humanity and there's like relatable stakes and, and the... The performances uh, know when to be quiet, and and there's a, a a subtlety in a music there that you don't see in a movie like this. But that makes it. I don't even think that's that's one of Joe Swanberg's better movies. I mean, I haven't seen his entire oeuvre, but you know, it wasn't my favorite. But it was it was still compared to this a lot more compelling. Sure. And even if you made a movie where everyone is sort of butting heads and hostile towards each other. Um, in this style, it can still work. Um, sure. I think, uh, you know, before Mumblecore was Dogma 95. Right, right. And a movie like The Celebration is, uh, you know, an example by Thomas Vinterberg is mm-hmm. like an example of uh, a movie about a family getting together and sort of something coming out and then all of everything spiraling off, yeah. of, off of that. That's not like a warm, cuddly movie. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I thought about Dogma 95 uh, over the weekend as well. Um, I... I had seen a celebration a while ago and, and yeah, again, it's a very compelling movie, very simple, bare bones to the point. You're right. It's not warm and cuddly, but you're, you're in it the whole time. Um, the movie that I watched was uh, called open hearts, uh, mm. a Danish movie uh, by Susanna beer was, is the director. Um, and it is a bit harsher than like a, a Joe Swanberg type movie um, where it's about uh, this couple and the guy gets in a car accident and he's paralyzed from the neck down. And um, while his, his fiance is kind of spiraling out, she, uh, she falls in love with the husband of the woman who's driving the car. So it's like a pretty fucked up scenario and does not uh, kind of put forward the best of, of humanity, but um, it does find a way to make, characters in this like unthinkable situation very human the performances are very well realized and also um there's care given to the uh the look of the movie i mean even with dogma 95 where um the philosophy behind it was to to strip away all the the spectacle and fireworks from filming and, and try to get to something real through the performances and the characters um the way that she utilizes the camera Um, with a lot of close-ups, a lot of uh, changes in lighting to kind of convey what a character wants to happen versus how a scene actually plays out. Like, it's very simple, but there is a poetry to it because there's thought and there's expertise brought to how the film is directed. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people who make movies like this have aspirations to be John Cassavetes. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, being John Cassavetes actually when you watch a faces when you watch shadows if you're not really thinking you could look at it and be like oh yeah anyone could make this movie mm-hmm. because it's just so rudimentary and most of this movie is take it takes place in this one living room and it's just these two people and like i have a camera and a living room and two people i could make faces and it's like it turns out being john cassavetes is the hardest thing yeah oh <laughs> like yeah when you actually yeah. read about how those movies were made and like how he just like tore himself apart trying to find truth uh, any way possible and just the years and years that he rehearsed and shot and re-rehearsed and mm-hmm. rewrote and shot and rehearsed and shot and then the years after that that he edited to get the performances just right and everything like those like John Cassavetes works so hard in all of his movies to do the thing he does mm-hmm. and I think people see it and they say oh well there's not a car chase so this is what's called an easy movie <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, and I think this is a movie that uh, Chris James, who was a first-time filmmaker, 
Uh, I don't know much about him. I, I was reading some interviews and stuff. He seems kind of insufferable, but like I'll, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he's maybe a misguided person who made a horrible thing. Um, he did go on to make other movies after this. I hadn't heard of any of them, but he, I, you know. yeah, my, I'm, I won't, I won't speculate. I, I will just say that like, I, get the f- we won't speculate, but we do think he might be a horrible person. <laughs> I, I we are communicating the the feeling of watching the movie, sure, which is sure. the thought that pops into your head. I think the people who made this movie are horrible. Yeah, that is yeah. what we're trying to communicate, not to actually accuse Chris James of any one thing. You, Chris James hates <laughs> lesbians. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> the way that subplot is introduced is also like you don't believe it, dude. My wife was on the phone with a lesbian. And yeah. They're like. Like gay, like she's gay, like she's a lesbian, and she was talking to her on the phone. Like, it's only later on you realize that his wife has already like made out with this woman. Yeah, but like that's not how he tells the story. And yeah. so the whole movie, I'm like watching here, being like, this guy's freaking out because she had a private conversation with a friend who likes women. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. A, a lot of the the plot is basically, and then they did drugs. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. Oh, also, also, his character is dating a 17 year old. <laughs> yes, Chris, girl. Chris's character is dating a 17 year old girl, which and is, he's like in his late 20s. By the way, and it's and it's set up as creepy and to mm-hmm. to, yeah, it to his benefit. It it doesn't pull a thing where it's like, but you know, in this crazy world, it turns out they're right for each other. Yeah, like, it, uh, it's it, it, like it's literally he shoots a scene of her of him kissing her, and to his credit, he cast Christine Lakin, who was like twenty seven when she made the movie. <laughs> so even though she's playing a seventeen year old, uh, she w- it's not like he like found an excuse to make out with a teenager in, right. his, in his movie because right. he's the director. Um, so like whatever I'm it's it doesn't necessarily feel icky in that way but it does sort of like if that's the baseline of like who this person is mm-hmm. and then it, it does the classic thing oh I love when movies do this where it's like what if we made a movie about like a shitty dude who's just angry about his life so he's just shitty to everyone mm-hmm. and then we had a scene where someone goes you know underneath it all you're a really great guy <laughs> and you're sitting there like is that true though <laughs> well, you, you know uh, what's the line? He, she's she's like, you know, you when you're not being an asshole are kind of a really nice guy, and it's like I don't think I I question that <laughs> assessment, Meadow. I bet he isn't. I think that's the thing that people tell themselves when they don't want to get out of a situation, and then when they're writing a screenplay, they have other people tell themselves, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, that. yeah. Anyway, so it's just like it's just gross and nasty the whole movie, yeah. and never in a productive way. Mm-hmm. Um. At a certain point after seeing it a second time, I had to find like little glimpses of like, you know, Jeremy Sisto is good at acting like he's on ecstasy. He's <laughs> that's, sure. that section of the movie where he's on drugs. He's doing something physical with his face that I was right. like, oh, OK, this guy knows what's up. <laughs> it seems like this movie doesn't really know how to reach any kind of conclusion. No. With its characters, um, I think Judy being a prime example of that, where uh, you know she comes home, she's upset. Um, Chris is a jerk to her, so she locks herself in the bedroom, and then the arguably nicest brother Matt comes in, and uh, they start making out, and then they stop, and then they smoke a joint, and then uh, he's complaining about his girlfriend, who's not at the wake, uh, <laughs> calls her, breaks up with her, and then he and Judy have sex. Uh, Another Judy Greer sexy. This is becoming like uh, yeah. most Judy Greer movies. She has sex. <laughs> that was our thought for year one of this podcast. Was like, was like, you know what sells? Sex sells. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, She's so charming and funny. I bet we could watch her bonk over and over again. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so they have they have sex in the, in the bedroom where her her dead boyfriend is lying in state. Sure. So at the climax. 
climax of the movie, there's a, a, a reading of a video will. The deceased states in the video will that uh, the house isn't worth much and he's, you know, spent all of his money on medical bills, I guess. But uh, his his girlfriend, Judy, has been lovely to him. And so he is he's leaving um, his life insurance to her. Specifically, the line is Judy. The sweetest thing I could have died looking at. So that that's that's his relationship with women as well. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I, which I guess we need to throw that up on the board along with the hottie and the hat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the sweetest thing I could have died looking at. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> um, doesn't he doesn't he say something about like uh, about like like the life that she's accustomed to and wanting to to keep her comfortable so or i think she is miscast because i think that her character is supposed to be a gold digging whore i think mm-hmm. that is what the movie thinks of her character mm-hmm. and i think because she is improv because she's improvising her lines and because she's the only person in this movie that you feel any affection towards whatsoever mm-hmm. no the audience does not judge her in that way um but i think that like the way she is set up in the movie and there's nothing that really challenges this no is that she's just sort of like the gold digging whore who likes going shopping yeah. and yeah doesn't, yeah she doesn't, comes back yeah. from shopping uh Oh, and 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 I mean, I mean, to the point about her being the gold digging whore. When she finds out that uh, that she's been left the life insurance money, she just gets up and leaves the house and doesn't mm-hmm. come back. Mm-hmm. And there's no explanation. The only thing that you're left to conclude is that is that she was just there for the money. And she's like, I got um, what I came for. I'm out. Yeah, but uh, to be fair, like if you if you're talking about just terms of labor. Okay, you're talking about work. You're talking about labor. Let's rethink how we think about work and labor. Uh huh. Being the girlfriend to a dying Hollywood producer, just ju- judging based on how his, his his sons turned out, a horrible man. Um, Probably and not spending, great. Watching him die and spending time with all of those horrible people. Mm-hmm. You know what? She earned it. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Take take the money. Yeah. <laughs> That's hard work. Yeah. Her abrupt departure is supposed to give you the suggestion that like oh man she really screwed matt over like like yeah. she was having sex with him and she sat there and he broke up with his girlfriend mm-hmm. and they got high together and then she just left and it's like well she didn't owe him anything right. she said she said that she was attracted to him she didn't say that oh let's run away together he broke up with his girlfriend by his own admission they had a horrible relationship right. and it was well past due so she's always nagging me because all i do is smoke weed and play army men yeah on the playstation yeah. <laughs> and also she doesn't want me to smoke weed with anyone else well you know what i feel like i feel like you were just freed from like a really like like mutually uh unhealthy toxic right. relationship so you're welcome right. i think judy has earned her mic drop yeah for sure <laughs> Um, she has the only fun and li- funny line in the movie. The the best part of her role is that she gets to not act opposite Chris, <laughs> um, or or Pat really, uh, mm-hmm. Chris or Pat. Not in a lot of scenes with her, which is to you know that that only benefits her performance. Um, she is uh, sort of sitting next to her boyfriend's corpse and telling him about her day, and she goes. I talked a little bit about my shopping and therapy. He said that by shopping all the time, I was trying to add something to my life that wasn't there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if Chris James wrote that line, congratulations, Chris, you wrote a good line. Yeah. But in my head, Judy Greer came up with that. Oh, yeah. She just delivers it in that sort of like effervescent way that she has where it's like, yeah. You just oh. described shopping. <laughs> like, that's a really funny joke. Oh, um, 
I I also liked um where you know she's kind of having the the conversation about her day with uh with the corpse and um she's talking about scream therapy and she explains how it's like her therapist has her make noises until like a real scream comes out of her and then you just get this moment of her like doing this and sort of going and then just getting louder Mm -hmm. and louder and it's just fun to see like the faces that she makes and how she's like really getting into it i feel like that's probably something she did in some some exercise while during her time at depaul that seems like an acting student exercise more than therapy yeah (laughs) yeah but it was fun to watch her do it uh another fun little uh running through that we've had in the six episodes of 96 Greers that we're doing so far. Um, she has acted with Matthew Lillard from uh-huh. Scream 1. Uh-huh. She has acted with Elise Neal, who played her doctor in Good Boy. Okay. Elise Neal from Scream 2. Oh, sure. And in this movie, she has sex with Matt Kiesler. Uh-huh. Um, he's the sort of vapid actor who gets blown up in the house in Scream 3. Oh, and so- in this movie, she screams. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, so so really she's one of the top screaming actors um no but i'm just saying we got to keep an eye out for if she ever has any scenes with uh characters or actors from scream 4 or scream 5 and scream right, 6 okay. and keep it up <laughs> the um, most scream adjacent the most scream adjacent <laughs> actor we can think of put that right up there with the hottie in the hat yeah <laughs> I have a list of things that annoyed me about this movie. I don't oh, know how oh. many more I have to just like, <laughs> I have to like the list, the horrible, like Chris sits down and plays some stupid Randy Newman ass song about oh, his dad yeah. being dead. And instantly everyone at the wake is just Start. like, Hey, this is good. Yeah. This, is, this guy's real. Like it's, it's just like everyone loves him. Every, at that yeah, moment. Everyone starts singing along and the dancing. hook, which is daddy is dead, which is like, there's probably people here who are like business associates or neighbors and it's like no one would think that was remotely appropriate they might let you mm-hmm. do your weird thing and say like okay that is his process they would not sing along and dance but on the other hand how many uh opportunities are we going to get to see jeremy sisto the actor actually jeremy sisto uh-huh. do uh attempt to do a freestyle rap um, clearly off the dome as you watch him do this no one sat down and wrote this for him he decided at this moment he was going to start freestyle rapping over this Randy Newman ass daddy's dead song uh-huh. and he says my daddy's in the ground he's six feet under he's in the ground up under so I say I'm a thunder man I'm the thunder dad and my dad's dead because he's a Hollywood producer man see and yo yo I'm like a cool cat walking down the streets yo because I'm going to get down on you bitches and hoes yeah because my dad's dead um, you, you start to hear him panic Halfway through that freestyle oh, rap no. when he realizes he has committed to a thing that he cannot do. Beautiful uh, bit of uh, sort of fourth wall enjoyment I get out of that one. Um, <laughs> this movie sucks ass. <laughs> so, this is easily the worst movie we've covered. I can't imagine we'll see a movie that's worse. But Another strange thing about this movie, kind of speaking of uh, weird uh, music choices, mm-hmm. is that the majority... <laughs> Of the non-diegetic music is Bell and Sebastian songs? <laughs> Why? When I think Bell and Sebastian, I think like this very like literate, like bittersweet, uh, ironic. Hard on your sleeve. Kind uh, of. Hard on your sleeve. Yeah. Uh, very emotional, but like wry at the same time. Like there's a delicacy to the yeah. lyrics and everything. Like, and this movie is not Bell and Sebastian. This movie no. is the germs. This movie is just. Bah, 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 bah. Yeah. Yeah. It's. <laughs> It, it was an interesting choice. I think I think the choice was probably like, hey, I like Bell and Sebastian. I can't imagine why else. 
And maybe that's like a maybe that's a uh, a Rosetta Stone to another thing that Chris James thought he was doing. Where uh, I when I think of Bella Sebastian in movies, I mm-hmm. think about uh, Todd Salons. I think about I think it was uh, Welcome to the Dollhouse. It might have been storytelling, but mm-hmm. um, there's a very memorable sequence in one of those movies set to uh, the state that I am in. And whenever I see Bell and Sebastian in a movie, I always think like, oh, it's like a Todd Salons thing. Because I just, they felt so perfect for his thing. Sure. And obviously Todd Salons is the auteur of angry, you know, nasty people who are terrible to each other all right, the time. And right. just, and like that kind of dark humor. So like maybe he thought he was going to do, pull off something like that. Maybe. I feel like, like Todd Salons has more of a, finesse to to his touch i mean i mean at he least has an actual like a, voice yeah yeah and, and an actual eye for for creating a this like view of suburbia that's sort of like i like ironic in its precision this movie is allergic to details there's yeah. a moment where one character who has never been there before is like tries to start a conversation to get some exposition going about who their dad was and like mm-hmm. who he was how he was situated in the world of Hollywood or whatever mm-hmm. he's like so your dad was like a big Hollywood producer right and Jeremy says to him and he's like yeah 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 Hollywood and some other stuff uh anyway yeah <laughs> like it, it, it gets shut down it's like okay I guess we're learning nothing yeah <laughs> I yeah. guess none of this has any specificity to it yeah yeah and, and there's also um the these uh so these um the, these scenes of presumably uh, a younger version of the dad and the kids in a swimming pool and I guess it's supposed to speak to um some like reminiscence about their childhood but it just doesn't seem to tie into anything I I couldn't I couldn't really it it, it just felt so so perfunctory and just sort of like oh this yeah this is the kind of image that conveys that it's like oh their dad died and they're kind of taking stock of things it it, it just didn't seem to to speak to anything it, it has no meaning because it's unearned yeah. because we see no glimpse of any part of their past that was ever any different than how they are right now after I watched this movie um I wanted to watch another movie set at a funeral i was gonna say i wanted to watch another movie too i needed i agree after i watched this movie i said well they can't all be that bad i will watch literally any other movie so i put on chopping mall and my faith in art was restored yeah yeah Um, no you wanted to watch another movie yeah i wanted to watch another movie set at a funeral um to to just you know give me something to compare this to so i watched the big chill Mm -hmm. um and Big Chill, early '80s movie, um, really famous cast. I mean, I mean, who's in that? Glenn Close, Kevin Kline, William Hurt, um, Maria Bamford's mom from Lady Dynamite. Uh, <laughs> famous people, you yeah. know. Um, Mary Kate Place, that's her name. So, so this it's a it's a very different film. Like, like, like it's very it's very glossy. It, it is firmly situated in like boomer uh, territory, but. Even though, again, it was like people at a funeral who are like very privileged and and that and and who and who I just kind of felt myself kind of pushing away from in in terms of like their their views on on life and and their views on the world. There was um, like actually like interesting connections between the characters, and you could actually see people um, reacting to their friend dying and taking stock of their lives and uh, contemplating who they were in the past versus who they are today and who they want to be in in the future. And um, 
finding ways to connect with um with like people who used to mean something to them and they're trying to find this this meaning again you know and and there's a lot of substance there just in in the relationships and just in like watching these characters kind of struggle with the situation that that they're put in and it's it's like night and day well yeah no one in this movie ever walks up to chris and goes hey i'm so sorry about your dad like yeah really this movie should be nothing but chris having people walk up to him and say hey i'm so sorry about your dad that's kind of what awake is yeah um but it's not actually an inflection point for anyone to think about anything it seems like no one particularly cares that he's dead and no one has any emotional investment in that um, other than that one moment when Judy Greer discovers it and she starts screaming and, uh, you know, right. uh, like no one seems particularly broken up about it. They're all just sort of like, oh, you know, we're chatting over the catering. and Right, right. And ironically, with uh, with Jeremy Sisto being in this movie, the thing that I think about is Six Feet Under. Sure. <laughs> Where you, I mean, and, and again, like it's a TV show, you have more time to to see who the, who the characters are and you get more time to sort of... Um, you know, uh, meditate on the, the themes of, of grief and mortality. Uh, but I feel like even in like one episode, you would get like a much more specific, uh, reaction from, from characters who are just in like the few scenes that are set at the, the funeral at the funeral home. Remember the biker funeral? I do remember the biker remember funeral. Remember the gay funeral? The, you know what? I thought about the episode with the gay funeral, the other day and I almost started crying like and that, all of those characters are only in that episode yeah but but it's but just it's like, like but you feel everything and you, yeah, you see the or, meaning of it yeah or, or there's there's even episodes where um where there's like a like a funeral that's being arranged or attended by someone who doesn't quite know why they're there like like there's one episode where um a body is found in the woods and and the the person died like 20 years prior and then like his his family and who he who like he was like declared dead in absentia or something and then like his family has to attend his funeral like 20 years after they're done grieving and it's just this like really weird experience where no one really knows how to respond to it and like that's super compelling right. like i'm not saying you have to have a movie about a funeral where everyone cries and is sad like like there, there's like a whole range of reaction to death and like that can be really compelling but just like but the having... least compelling option is no reaction yeah exactly exactly <laughs> yeah yeah the, the least compelling reaction is i'm gonna get pissy about my ex-girlfriend and, and and do ecstasy like like come on it's it's cowardice it's a fucking cowardly movie. It is. I don't have anything else to say about... And wait, let me see if I can remember. In memory of my father. Yes. I don't yeah. have anything else to say about this movie, personally. Do you have anything else you want to talk about? I think the only other thing I can say about this movie is when I think about Dogma 95, we talked about Mumblecore and, and kind of the uh, stylistic choices and, and tropes of those movies where it's like a, a lot of times actors who aren't very experienced. It has an improvisational style. It has a simple um, aesthetics, no special effects, no nothing um genre related no spectacle um i remembered that one of my all-time favorite movies fits that bill uh lucas moodyson's we are the best oh yes and i got mad all over again because <laughs> i was like oh if you just bring some um some specificity and some heart and some humanity 
to making a very simple movie, you can have something that is just like like beautiful and affirming and, and says something and is both deeply relatable and a glimpse into someone's world who you would never think about otherwise mm-hmm. and just be like a perfect 90 minute experience. <laughs> But no, I, I really do think this is this this is the movie that results when someone thinks like they're not process oriented. They are like end result oriented mm-hmm. and they think it would be really satisfying to have made a uh, like a faces or it would be really yeah. satisfying to have made some uh, uh, a, uh, you know, an early Lars von Trier movie or something like that. Yeah. Like uh, I would like to set out to achieve that. And they're not yeah. actually trying to capture anything that is real about their own lives or anything. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. Cause, cause I mean, I mean, kind of going back to dogma 95, I mean, it is this like very in theory, uh, because very few dogma 95 films actually dogmatically adhere to the dogma of dogma 95, but the intention behind it is pair away all of the extras and just focus on what we see as the essence of filmmaking. But the people making those movies were experienced filmmakers. So they're not, they're not trying to glitch their way into like speed running a film career. We got the uh, sentiment ha- uh, skip coming up in a, in a minute, a uh, sentiment <laughs> skip. We're going to be seeing some super eight footage of the boys playing with their dad. And that's going to save us a lot of time emotionally. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I'm not trying to dissuade anyone from like, you know, just like grabbing your iPhone and making a movie. I know I've been involved in those projects and they're amazing and fun. And like some of my favorite memories are like the short films that like I've made with my friends. Uh, but I I feel like you just have to do it because you love the thing that you're doing and you want to do it. And when it just feels like this very cynical kind of move for the sake of your career or or this like desire to like look at the the nastiest part of yourself and not realize that there's like hundreds of movies about the nastiest part of yourself maybe maybe do something else with your time man like (laughs) agreed totally absolutely i think we're ready to go on to what i'm willing to now definitively call the other segment I the think it's what we can segment. call we can call the other segment of this podcast. That has mystery and gravitas. The other segment. Capital T, capital O, capital S, the other segment. Um, we often do two segments, but this time we're gonna sort of collaborate on a single segment. Yeah. Yeah. Um now this is a segment where because I think in memory of my father is it it really shows how easy it is. Uh it really does show that you can speed run. Um, meaning and and filmmaking is very easy mm-hmm. um, and you don't really need to put a lot of effort into writing um, no. or easy, thinking about easy lemon squeezy about visual identity or anything like that because you can just like know what your character feels and then just say it and then that's what acting is sure um, and so I thought we would improvise the previous movies we have covered on this podcast this is episode six so we're going to improvise five other movies all right um and we're going to specifically improvise these scenes influenced um, by the sort of acting style of Chris James. Okay. So this is going to be very in memory of my father-esque okay. um, uh, improv, improv scenes, 40, short 45-second scenes. We're going to go through chronologically, um, chronologically all of the all right. films that we have covered on 96 Greer so far uh-huh. in a segment I'd like to call. And when I say I'd like to call it, I mean I'm going to hit the consonant really hard so it doesn't accidentally sound anti-Semitic. Jude's line is it anyway. 
Jude's line is it anyway. All right. Okay. Yep. Let's improvise some stuff. I believe you have a timer set up there. Yes. Um, uh, in, in departing from what was going to be a Dogma 95 podcast segment, I, I do have a timer set up with some end credit music that'll come in when, uh, when our 45 seconds to the scene is up. Oh, beautiful. Now, I thought we would trade off being uh, Judy Greer's character. Okay. Um, who, 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 you, want, you want to start as Jude or you, should I start as Jude? Are we starting with who? With uh, what planet are you from? If we're going chronologically. Oh no, I apologize. I meant chronologically for the podcast. So we're going to start with uh, Pottersville. We're going to start with Pottersville. I think we should make it fair and do rock paper scissor. Okay, okay. let's do it. So win- winner gets to be Judy Greer. Winner gets to be Judy Greer. Okay. Rock paper scissor shoot. Ah, rock paper scissor shoot. Ah, rock paper scissor shoot. Bop. Okay, okay. that was great audio content because you saw. <laughs> What happened? <laughs> it's like you were there. It's like you were there. I, I won. Um, okay. so, a hard-fought so, battle. So you, so you want to be Parker? I'm going to be Parker. Okay. And then the, and then for what planet are you from, you will be... Uh, Rebecca. Rebecca. Rebecca, the flight attendant. Thank you. Okay, so... Um, um, whenever you're ready with okay. the timer, we'll start the improvisation. Okay. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just trying to think of another character from that movie and what their name is. Oh, you know, we don't have to think about names. Okay. It'll, it'll be fine. Okay. Good day, mate. I'm here from Australia, and I heard you have a Bigfoot. Oh, you, so that's you. You think you think I have a Bigfoot? Fuck I'm, yeah. I work at a fucking. I went at a bakery. Okay, look around. You see you see Bigfoots. You see big feets. I work in a bakery. Fucking. Hey there, you lovely Sheila. You're acting pretty crazy, like all women okay, do. Okay. Okay. Do you want to hit this joint that yeah, I'm smoking? Oh, fine. Just bring it over here. God, you're so annoying oh, it, sometimes. It's you the know best what I mean? Australian Kush. Oh gosh, all this town so fucking stupid, and everyone's dumb, and they're stupid, and they don't realize there's not a Bigfoot, and it's stupid. And here's the joint back. Man, I'm just a producer. Producer on a TV show, and I'm pretty cynical about life, but I could tell that you got a lot of smart ideas. You what, beautiful, what is lovely that vo- Sheila. What, are that, what is that voice even from? What are you, French or something? No, I'm from Australia. Australia? It's so stupid. I'm just here to look for big fucking, and it's... And scene. <laughs> I, I didn't know what the end credits music was going to be, everybody. <laughs> okay, next we're going to do what planet what are you planet from? What planet are you from? And this and so now I am going to be Rebecca the flight attendant. Mm-hmm. Look, will you just come back? Come back. Why are you walking away? I, I have something fucking to say, okay? You have come in here and you've ruined everything. I, this is an AA meeting. I was going to say something. I I'm was going to say something. What and you were you going to say? Interrupting. Can I? You can I speak? Just, you, I guess you can. I guess you can. I'm an alien with a vibrating penis and I need to impregnate a human woman to save my race. There. Was that hard? Was it hard to listen to me? You are fucking, so full of shit. I am just going to ignore full you. Full of shit now. I can't, I can't you're believe gonna you're going to ignore me now? Yeah, I'm just going to talk to my new boyfriend you're talk to your new who's boyfriend super sexy. Now? Who's super sexy now? Yeah, my super sexy Awesome new so boyfriend. Here, so I guess I just don't matter. Like, I just can't do anything right. No, no, like, you don't. No, fuck. You like, don't I'm matter. Fucking, I can't fuck. I came to an like, AA meeting. So I got to think about you and, I'm here and your boyfriend. I have my flight attendant life. I have my cool new boyfriend. <sighs> cool and boyfriend. I'm just trying to get my life together. You know you're a fucking whore sleeping around. He's married. Your fucking boyfriend's married. But you're uh, too dumb. It's... Well, and that was... <laughs> what planet are you from? This is exhausting. I didn't give Chris James enough credit. This is hard work. <laughs> it's hard work sucking this hard. Uh, <laughs> Was episode three good boy? It is good boy. Okay, so you're gonna be uh, you're gonna be Maggie in this yeah. one. Okay, all right, and go. 
So my job? You're cutting my job? What am I fucking supposed to fucking? You're fucking cutting my fucking job look, from me? Look, you just need to take some ecstasy with me, and everything's gonna be a okay. We're gonna we're gonna sit out by the swimming pool. We're just gonna chill. You don't fucking chill. No, you gotta. I'm trying to be out here. I'm trying to cover the. You gotta expand your mind. Hey, you. Hey, that dog's beautiful. That dog, you know. Of age, you don't know anything about this fucking dog, okay? All you know is this oh, fucking I, I dog's gonna know fucking about kill this fucking you. Dog. Go get him. That that dog looks looks. Reuben, yeah. Kill. Ah, oh god, my cartoid artery blah, ah, blah. My boss is ah. dead. Bump 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 bump. My boss is dead. Oh, First wow. of what a great song. Bump bump We forgot the first rule of improv. Don't kill your seed partner because then you can't do the seed. That's <laughs> okay. I reincarnated myself as an extra. Thank it's you very fine. much. <laughs> oh, man. Two more of these, huh? <laughs> Seemed like a good idea. Okay. Next is... I feel like I'm learning so much about improv. This might surprise the audience to learn. I've never taken an improv class. Uh, you are as good as me at improv, and I used to teach an improv class. So I think the real rule is if you don't, flex that muscle you're gonna lose it julie spear that's right oh the descendants juicy treat herself julie spear <laughs> of the so, descendants so is the next uh improvisation you are going to be playing okay. julie spear i just i'm julie and i just go around to, to dead people and I, I just talk to them on their okay. deathbeds and okay. i just get really upset okay. and i'm okay. the only one who okay. gets upset and i okay. don't know why okay. i don't understand i'm okay. just i'm just here i was i was shopping and okay. my husband cheated on Fine. me and i'm just really Fine. upset and okay. i just want to let them know that i forgive them for dying i forgive him for dying and i'm the last descendant of king kamake and mayo <laughs> really impressive would you like some of this hawaiian kush i would love some of the hawaiian kush oh this is a wonderful wonderful cannabis joint as i watched julie <laughs> cry i realized that i had a lot to learn about being a father but i was on the path to learning more i like how we got our contempt for alexander payne in there as well i didn't realize this was too uh Two episodes in short succession with uh, prominent scenes with uh, next to corpses. Yeah, I, I guess so. You know, sometimes you, you just find those uh, find those connections. It's yeah. uh, it's just it's, it's just the universe giving you a sign, man. It's a it's an interesting body of work. We got one more to do, and I'm so sorry, but I'm the one who gets to play Penny. Oh man. Okay. Well, I mean that is truly an honor. So, yeah. Uh, I'm starting the clock at your. You're gonna. You're not. You're not gonna be the. You're not gonna do a wedding anymore. What? You're gonna fucking walk away from yeah. the fucking wedding? Yeah. I. I got these ecstasy um tablets and they look like Scrabble tiles and I'm super excited to take them. It's, it's all not, I care about. You, but it's just wait, doing drugs. It's not just about you. Everything always has look, to be about you. Look, Penny, I need you to do this Penny, wedding too. Fuck you. That, that's all I have to say. Okay. I. I don't have. Fuck me. Fuck, fuck you. you. No. 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 Fuck, fuck you. Fuck you. I haven't fuck thought you. anything about our relationship. I haven't thought anything about of course, how we no, connect. No. I just. I guess I just can't do anything right. Nothing. I guess nothing about me matters. Right? Sinless, I guess we're I just yelling don't at each other and it's fucking... really really meaningful what Penny I... what what is that fucking perm I've been meaning to ask the whole time what you don't like my perm? perm I hate that perm Penny I hate it it's it's a nightmare you look I don't know if this is the dumbest movie podcast <laughs>
but I'll be goddamned if we don't put in the effort. <laughs> that was Jude's line, is it anyway? And now we know never to do a segment like that again. Lesson learned. Or every 10 episodes we do another. <laughs> and we just eventually <laughs> improvise the entire bodywork of Judy Greer. It's like that uh, abridged so, Shakespeare. <laughs> so, so, so saying that everyone's going to skip episode 16. You're right. You're right. Uh, we're not, we promise we won't do that again. Look. Well, it was we fun had, for us. We had a lot of contempt. <laughs> We had to get that contempt out somehow, and that was uh, Jude's line, is it anyway? That's not the end of this podcast, though, is it, Reg? No, it's not. Um, After the other segment, we come to the last segment, which is, of course, judalization. Um, You've heard the movies in chronological order of this podcast uh, that we've talked about, but uh, for those of you who have uh, been following along uh, maybe this is your first time listening and you're still listening in which case God bless you um, but we rank the movies that we watch based on how well they utilize the theatrical talents of Judy Greer that's right um, not, now, not necessarily best movie but best no. best Judy yes best Judy best use of Judy um, so I'm going to remind everyone what the current list is. Um, so going from worst judalization to best judalization, we've got Pottersville, What Planet Are You From?, The Descendants, The Wedding Planner, and at number one, we have Good Boy. Very good. So, uh, Patrick, have you give any thought as to where you would rank in memory of my father. Oh, just drop that shit right in the bottom. Yeah. Just drop it right in the bottom. It's bottom of the barrel all the way across. You don't hire Judy Greer if you want to have a a cynical, like she can be, she can play shallow and she can play uh, self-absorbed. Yeah. But like you don't set her as the character who's selfish and you you want you know who takes advantage of everyone around her and then she's the most charming and captivating part of your movie that's that's a poor use of judy greer yeah yeah absolutely especially when you you give her time to just sort of do her own little weirdsies by herself and it's delightful and then all of a sudden she's your favorite character and then you're supposed to think she's a she's a gold digger but that's no. that's not how it comes across um yeah she gets some charming moments in this movie but yeah not not the best casting choice um not the best not the situations in which she shines pottersville didn't give her a lot to work with but at least it it was a little more appropriate to the kind of energy that she brings to a role right um no she just i i don't feel like she fit in with this uh with 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 the the cynicism uh, of this of this movie no no absolutely not um, this is the bottom of yeah. all of all lists, really. Um, I I really hope this is the worst that we have to sit through because I've already said this is the worst movie I've ever seen twice. I got one word for you, Patrick Marmaduke. I look Marmaduke in its lane could be just a perfectly whatever movie, and it wouldn't hurt me the way this movie hurt me. Because I'm going to go into Marmaduke knowing it's Marmaduke. I went into this just knowing, oh, it's an indie movie where she is the head, you know, she's the lead female actor. Like, so I had, my expectations were at least like, this could be anything. Marmaduke, I know is Marmaduke. 
I don't think it's going to get worse than this personally. He's big. He's a big dog. He gets into trouble. And what's there's nothing wrong with a big old dog with a big old heart. But maybe, maybe he doesn't know. Maybe he doesn't know all the time that he can't jump into your lap because he'll break the easy chair you're sitting in to, you know, use a gag that I just invented in my head that's probably a Marmaduke. I, I, I'm sick of Marmaduke slander. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't, mean, I didn't mean to needlessly slander Marmaduke, which we haven't watched yet. We stand a garbage eating king. That's. I'm cutting that out. Thank you. <laughs> Next episode, I can't speak to the quality of the movie. I've never seen it, but we are taking a turn into a, a more uh, gentle, colorful, fantastical world with uh, Studio Ghibli's movie, The Cat Returns. Yes. Uh, a semi-sequel slash spinoff to Whisper of the Heart. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, I, I enjoy Studio Ghibli movies. Um, I'm going to not get my hopes up. Whisper <laughs> of the Heart is one of my favorite studio ghibli movies mm-hmm. this is a very different thing i like i like whisper of the heart because it is a like slice of life thing where this is explicitly fantasy mm-hmm. but uh at any rate like this is not going to be in memory of my father so i'm i'm excited and you know judy greer pro- prolific voice actor this is the first time we get to talk about her as a voice actor that's true that's true so uh it'll be a, a fun little stirring up the the the, the 96 greer's pot yeah for, for us 96 Greers is part of the Now Playing Network. Check out the other podcasts at nowplayingnetwork.net. Uh, you can follow us on Mastodon at 96Greers at laserdisc.party. You can email us at 96Greers at proton.me. Um, Unless you're Chris James, in which case, it's all right. We we, we, we believe you. You're a good guy and you, you tried your best. You we have, don't need to hear from you. You have more money than us. You don't need to... <laughs> You don't need to rub it in. It's fine. You play doctor number two on Lost, Chris James. Don't you come to us talking about being bullies. Well, until next time, I'm Reg. And I'm Patrick. And And say say goodbye goodbye to these.